Hello and welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I was trying to be a little more enthusiastic in saying that. I'm Tom Hagee. The Emerging Litigation Podcast, this is a collaboration between my company, HB Litigation Conferences, and Law Street Media and Fastcase. They're related, those two companies, but that's who, we, uh, that's who we're doing this with. Today we're going to talk about an emerging industry within an emerging crisis and some uh, emerging litigation. Uh, well, we won't talk about that part, but we're going to talk about the other stuff, the regulation, the getting it done. But anyway, we expect litigation to emerge, and some of it has. But let's focus on what's up with wind energy in the context of the climate crisis. Uh, it's come to the forefront of, of that uh, as part of the Biden administration's battle against climate change. And if you read his statements about it, his battle to increase the number of American jobs. I didn't count the number of time, times they used the, jo- uh, the word jobs in their statements, but uh, you can imagine it was quite a number of times, and you can imagine why. You're sophisticated. He signed an executive order on January 27, which starts off by saying that the United States and the world face a profound climate crisis, and that we have a narrow moment to pursue action at home and abroad in order to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of the crisis. The executive order discusses uh, in great amount of detail many things like the, a new position called the Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. It's got the, uh, the new uh, White House Office of Domestic Climate Policy. There's even a task force. There's always a task force. Uh, he talks about a climate change finance plan. Talks about the Paris Agreement, the Amazon rainforest, the ozone layer, national security ramifications, international collaboration and innovation, and much, much more. There's always much more. As for the uh, part we're going to talk about today, it's renewable energy on public lands and in offshore waters. The order says that the Secretary of the Interior shall review siting and permitting processes on public lands and in offshore waters to, to identify Uh, to the task force steps that can be taken, consistent with applicable law, of course, to increase renewable energy production on those lands and in those waters with the goal goal of learning to speak properly, with the goal of doubling offshore wind by 2030 while ensuring robust protection for our lands, waters, and biodiversity and creating good jobs. Did I mention the jobs? There it is again. It's big, it's complicated, and it's coming at a time when nothing, politically speaking, is a snap. So that's about all I know about the issue. Fortunately for you, my guest knows quite a bit more. His name is Jack Smith. His full name is Newman Jackson Smith, which I think is cool. Like me, uh, William Thomas Hagee, he goes by his middle name. And um, that's not interesting, but he is. He's a partner at Nelson Mullins in South Carolina. Charleston, South Carolina. Jack practices in the areas of environmental law and litigation, administrative law, land use law, and constitutional law. Works in a number of practice areas, as you can imagine, energy, environmental, government relations, resort and planned communities, and some toxic torts. He uh, works in industries from energy and utilities to hospitality, leisure and travel, manufacturing, and of course, real estate. Jack uh, has a BS in psychology from the University of South Carolina, Go Gamecocks, and his JD also from the University of South Carolina School of Law. So with that, let's jump into it. Here is Jack Smith of Nelson Mullins. Hope you enjoy it. 
Jack Smith. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very glad to be here, Tom. Thank you. So I've uh, introduced uh, introduced our subject, and so we're talking today about uh, developments in offshore wind energy is part of uh, President Biden's executive order on climate. And I also note you've written a couple articles on this, which I will share uh, links to with people. But I thought kind of kicking off with the first question, uh, well, why don't we step back just a little bit and just can you talk a little bit about the executive order and the efforts to jumpstart wind energy uh, programs? Uh, absolutely. Uh, the executive order on climate uh, has just a very little phrase in it about offshore wind, uh, about doubling the capacity by 2030. The rest of it's really a, a governmental broadside attack on all the things that are necessary to bring renewable energy to the forefront and, and try to reduce our carbon footprint as a nation while increasing jobs. I mean, uh, it's clear this administration is focused on you know, good jobs coming out of all of the things that it's planning to do. And I think there is a good opportunity for that. Uh, a new industry is being born offshore. Uh, we're about 20 years late uh, in this country. Uh, Europe has exceeded, uh, you know, succeeded very well in putting offshore wind to work. Uh, so I think the opportunity from that executive order, particularly for the offshore wind, is probably the most relevant because uh, we already have onshore windmills. We have solar and other um, hydro projects, but this is really the new opportunity. Okay, so the, uh, so the administration is calling for the doubling of offshore wind capacity by 2030. So what what's going to take uh, to get there? It's going to take a lot of hard work, and it's going to take a lot of intergovernmental cooperation and coordination. Um, we're probably going to see between now and 2030 about 50 billion dollars worth of worth of investment and offshore wind. And what we've seen so far with only about three leases actually having been let for the 13 projects that are in the pipeline, um, that the, the process is fairly straightforward. You know, uh, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management uh, within the Department of Interior controls the leases for the Outer Continental Shelf. And it's only about 10 years old. It was created uh, in 2010, 2011. And the leasing program has the benefit of the studies that were done the 10 years prior, where the different areas of the Outer Continental Shelf were mapped for where the wind energy was. They studied where the climate dynamics were for the best wind fields that could be harvested you know, with windmills and where it was shallow enough in order to have them you know, secured to the ocean uh, bottom because that's a fairly... Um, well-known uh, engineering uh, design. And so if you go too deep, like off California, you really, they're going to look at floating. But right now the focus is really where the low-hanging fruit is, so to speak, in the uh, north, north and mid-Atlantic, where the richest wind fields are. So first you have to have that backdrop of where would it be appropriate to put a lease and then put the leases out for bid. Um, once a company gets a lease, then they have to go through the process of what a project would really look like. Uh, the engineering, all the, all the soft cost, if you will, for planning, where would they be put? Where, where's your port going to be to get your um, wind turbines out there? Uh, where are you going to get the uh, rocks for the scour protection for the foundations under the sea? what other studies have to be done, the programmatic EISs, environmental impact studies that were done by Boeing, Boeing 
um, have you know, a lot of good information, but it's not detailed enough for a particular siting study. And so additional work has to be done at that level during that planning stage so that the public has an opportunity to review what that will uh, potentially do. Um, and that's only part of it is offshore. The other planning is onshore. Where will those cables bringing power come ashore? Where will they connect to the grid? Those are all things that are controlled by different levels of government, with local governments controlling some things, coastal management programs at the state level controlling some, uh, and of course the uh, public utilities uh, and the FERC uh, have, all have a role to play. So there, there's really a, a, a planning map, a puzzle that has to be put together at this early planning stage after you get a lease in order then to see how much is it gonna really cost and how much energy can we really produce. So that's just kind of a glimpse of the complexity, I think, of what this industry is going through. The first one that was ever built in the United States and Rhode Island was Block Island. There are five wind turbines offshore, you know, producing power. They made a mistake, actually. They, did, they went through and didn't bury the cable coming ashore deeply enough. A storm came in and damaged it, and the company had to go back out and spend $30 million to replace it. Um, so these things, this learning curve that um, you know, I, I think we are, are starting to learn how these things really work. Yeah, when you talk about the different agencies and all the approvals, someone's going to have to have a lot of patience um, to, to get this done. And and obviously, it's not necessarily something that's popular. Uh, you know, politically speaking, you know, we're divided on everything, and and I think this is just going to be another area. So it just it just does sound like it's it's going to be a tough process to get something up, up and running, but you started getting into uh, what goes into it. So what you started discussing the process of getting a project up and running uh, is that, do you want to say more about that? Uh, well, yes. I mean, once you go through the paper process and you begin to look at, you know, the actual investment of the dollars to put machinery on a ship and take it to sea and, and secure it to the uh, ocean floor, um, you, you get into the other land side logistics. Uh, one of the hurdles for the development of this industry is the fact that we're um, uh, constrained by the Jones Act, having to have American flag vessels go from port to port within the U.S. Once you put one single thing on the sea floor in our outer, outer continental shelf, it becomes a U.S. point. And therefore, you then have to be Jones Act compliant. You can bring in a foreign vessel to put the first rocks down there or whatever you're going to put there first. But after that, they have to be Jones Act compliant. So there's that uh, lack of um, shipping capacity. There's a lack of ports facilities where you can do the lay down. I mean, these machines and materials are huge, you know, football fields and length and extremely heavy. And so the, the manufacturing and laydown areas are another uh, thing that's ramping up. Uh, there's a, a facility in uh, Texas where one of the first U.S. ships is being made that can install an offshore wind tower. And so it's just starting. So those are other processes in the background that have to come together. And there are jobs at every one of these points, of course, and opportunities, but also Big changes and big changes can breed uh, conflict. Um, you know, there's the, the 
everything that the administration has put out about this and its uh, executive orders and its other announcements to jumpstart this industry have always used union jobs. And that is something that the Northeast is perhaps used to, but other parts of the world are not. And that, that may be a source of, of concern for some states looking at this opportunity. Um, but more importantly, it's an opportunity. And I, I've seen uh, Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina get into a three-state agreement to cooperate on those types of shoreside logistics on how can we help support this industry. Dominion's building a pilot project off of Virginia, uh, Dominion Energy, and uh, there are other plans underway. Some of the leasing in the area just above South Carolina and the North Carolina area is, is now on the kind of planning board for, for leasing. So getting these industries actually up and running, like I said, it's a lot of hard work, but it's something that is worth investing in because it brings energy ashore and creates new opportunities on that side. Uh, uh, the grid is a, another issue. Yeah, the grid is not really built for renewables. It's built for baseload um, activities, you know, like a nuclear or a coal plant or a hydro plant, where you have a continuous supply of a certain amount of electricity that you can ramp up or down to some degree. But it, it provides stability that renewable energy really doesn't unless you have a sufficient capacity for storage, like through a battery facility. And so those are things that have to be added to, because we're talking about by 2030, you know, 30 gigawatts of renewable energy coming from offshore. Um, that's quite a lot uh, for in a short amount of time. And so being ready to receive that in this grid that's based on overhead lines and 100 and 150 years old is uh, going to be difficult without some advanced planning. And that's not something that's being ignored, but it's not as... Uh, obvious to people that those things are needed. So that's that's another factor for getting this up and running. So the, uh, yeah, I guess I never thought about it, that it uh, the storage being a problem, because I figured there must have been some solution for, you know, if the wind is blowing, there's going to be electricity. And if there's not, there's not. Um, I'm, I was thinking it can't be that simple. There must be some way that it feeds into some kind of storage facility. Is that how it, is how it works now? There's some le level of storage, but maybe not enough it's to equate to like nuclear? It's growing. You know, the, the the energy that's not used in a baseload situation is just not used and you kind of lose that. Uh, but in a renewable situation, if it goes down, you want to have that backup battery storage. And so it can be stored to the capacity of the storage facilities, but that's what needs to be built. You know, that's what's now beginning to be investigated. The, the wind turbine test facility uh, in South Carolina has a component of that where they've done some test work on what type of battery storage can be plugged into uh, the windmills um, more efficiently and connect to the existing grid. So work is ongoing with that. And it's, it's part of what will be the infrastructure. I think another part of the administration is looking at infrastructure and electrical infrastructure will have to include this for renewable energy to work. Okay. I've long thought that we'd need way better batteries in all things. <laughs> whenever my whenever my iPod or my laptop goes dead, I'm like, what is with us in batteries? <laughs> yeah, I remember I used, I used to have those, you know, those cheap uh, 
calculators that would run on light, you know, uh, Radio Shack. Yes. <laughs> they would just go forever. Why can't we use that? Because, <laughs> the, because the chip capacity of what we're using takes a yeah. whole lot more energy. When you carry yeah. the world's knowledge in your pocket yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and a phone disguised as a phone, it's, uh, it's a powerful machine. <laughs> Those are just details. Um, <laughs> um, okay, but I love those calculators. Uh, the uh, so what uh, what uh, I mean, coming up with a lot of questions as I, as I listen to you. This is this is fascinating. Uh, but speaking of you know the theme of this podcast, what what battlegrounds do we see developing over the next ten years? Uh, we've already seen some. You know, the fishery industry uh, is certainly paying attention. There was a a case in the D.C. Circuit where uh, the Department of Interior was sued for not having done an environmental impact statement for a lease that it granted someone of the uh, offshore in the New York area. And the courts have looked at when when is an EIS appropriate in offshore leasing under the Oil and Gas Act. Uh, you know, the OCS Lands Act was in the 50, early 50s. And so a lot of um, early coastal zone management issues in the 70s and 80s looked at when when is it appropriate to have uh, uh, sufficient environmental information to make a decision about whether that is or isn't consistent with some policy to protect the marine environment. And the court in this case, uh, I think it was the Fisher's Fund, Fisherman's Fund uh, case, decided in February of this year on rehearing that it, when you have an irretrievable commitment of resources is when you can put the environmental impact statement requirement in place. Before there's an irreversible commitment, then it's not really necessary. Uh, and that's not uncommon in the old OCS cases for oil and gas uh, as it is for here. So the, the, I think you'll see the uh, lobstermen in Maine. You'll see fishermen up and down the coast. There's, there's already... Um, uh, a group that is focused on this, that is engaged in conversations uh, with the wind energy companies. And, and so I, th I think we'll see the battle for location. You know, is that really the best site? What we haven't seen yet is the uh, non-governmental organizations. You know, when, when will the environmental impact statement process say, this may hurt this endangered species, or this may hurt this type of uh, ecosystem? Uh, or, you know, where the cable goes and, and when will those um, nonprofits begin to speak up and go, wait a minute, that's too much scale back or, um, you know, pay more, do more mitigation, do something about this. So I think we'll see those natural resource, um, both from a commercial harvesting standpoint and a natural resource per se, uh, preservation and change species act cases will, will certainly be brought um, we don't know how they'll come out, of course, because hopefully if the work is done at the beginning of the planning process and you have enough information, you have to make those hard decisions. Is this really going to work? And even if there are some impacts, can it be mitigated? Is it reversible? Um, I think those will be where that will come. The others are going to come on shore. And we will see, I mean, already New Jersey is considering legislation that would prevent local governments from being able to veto the uh, cables coming in from offshore and would force them to be uh, to approve placing them in public street right-of-ways uh, to connect to the grid. And it uh, hasn't passed yet, but those are the types of things being considered because those local governments have planning, zoning, and local constituents at the voting booth that uh, may not like the idea of 
those things coming into their community for because it's a big change. Um, the other will be where will they site the new port facilities or new manufacturing facilities that will support the offshore work. And so I think we'll see you know, those types of land use uh, issues will, will bubble up from that. Uh, if you if you need, you know, 5,000 new workers to come into a certain region because of uh, the support for this uh, new renewable energy infrastructure, that may create a housing issue, uh, which we already suffer from. After COVID, we have uh, certainly no, no excess of housing anywhere. Uh, so I, I think we'll see all kinds of litigation opportunities coming down the pike uh, with this. Uh, there, there are also some uh, grant programs and loan programs uh, for the infrastructure for this that um, may result in, in people saying, well, you didn't do that right. This didn't, uh, they don't really meet the qualifications. I'm challenging your award. And so the, the issues through the coastal management program are probably the ones that will be the, the focus for bringing uh, any of the energy onshore. Uh, the 1972 Coastal Zone Management Act created uh, a lot of autonomy for the states. If they go through the process and have a federally approved by the Department of Commerce state coastal management program, they can veto federal activities, including federal permits, unless they're in the national interest. So there'll be a fight in some of these locations over whether or not this renewable energy resource and that particular project offshore is in the national interest to the extent it could allow the Secretary of Commerce to override a state coastal management decision. That's just a, what, what I see on the drawing board for where the litigation might be coming from during the next 10 years, where we will learn the hard way, of course, where it happens, because we don't know which backyards will be first yet. Right. Yeah. There, so many, uh, so many different groups have different concerns. I guess the the one thing you mentioned, and you're also you're an environmental lawyer, obviously. And so, what what can you tell us just about the environmental impact? Um, are there any myths uh, in either direction? You know, you know, some might say, "Oh, it's completely clean and it's completely safe," and the other the other side might say, "Well, it's also really bad for the environment." What what would you say are the uh, the realities of the impact on the environment? Well, everybody who breathes has an impact on the environment. And if you got in your car and went to work or to the store, then you have you know, there's another one. So nothing is without impact that humans do on the planet. Uh, let's start with that premise. So is it bad enough to really prevent it? Um, if you go back to the basic uh, kind of English common law, the law of the commons, uh, everybody has a right to bring their sheep to the common green and let them eat, but you can't let your sheep eat enough so that nobody else has any grass to eat. And our air and water laws in particular are, are looking at how do we allocate resources of air and water so that we can all use it, but it's still clean and healthy to use for the public. Um, and so these towers offshore and the cabling are pretty minor impacts if you look at the acreages involved, the actual siting of them, because if, if you put in, uh, say, a 15 megawatt um, tower and you've got, um, you know, blade that's, you know, football field um, in diameter or more, you're going to have to have a separation of maybe, you know, eight times that diameter for the next tower or you will be interfering with this capacity for taking the kinetic wind energy out. 
And so they're, they're widely spaced. So it will take up a lot of acreage in terms of where the farm is, but it is you know, pr- fairly small, discrete for each one. So what's the cumulative impact is where you're going to see where there's some macro impact on a species or on some, some living component or on some harvesting of that. You know, so it's either going to be that natural resource or that commercial harvesting. Um, is it placed and sited in such a way that they can continue and it's not so badly damaged that, that they need to have payment for those damages or, or not? But the true environmental impact is, is going to be, uh, I don't think in Europe they have studied it like they will here but they have to some degree. And we don't really see the uh, adverse impact that one would expect. So I think the myth is that it's going to kill all the birds that fly from from pole to pole. And it's going to kill every uh, whale that gets close to it. You know, but, uh, those things are probably not true, but we'll have to live through this and see, does it affect a particular fishery? Will it attract fish around these rocks and towers? And therefore, you know, create recreational fishing opportunities. Or do we need to have no no uh, float zones around them to protect them because they're a public infrastructure? So there, there are different dynamics that have to be balanced here. Uh, so I think the myth is that they're really awful when, in fact, they have very minor impacts. But they could be meaningful impacts if they affect somebody's pocketbook. Right. Okay. Well, you mentioned birds. That was the first thing that came to mind. It's like yes. you got these. They look like well, like. They're not propellers so much, but I guess they are the turbines. It, yes. Yeah, that's it's going to kill some birds, I, I would think, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it does, my, it does. My, having a window in my house has broken enough, <laughs> killed enough birds, but uh, uh, so it's, it's not, it, you yeah. don't think that's like, they're not going to suddenly flock into these things. And no, that's part of the birds. siding decisions and part of the impact studies that will be done for the actual siding and, and construction. They have to, to analyze what are the migratory routes and how. How can they avoid it? And there's technology being developed that helps to deflect. Uh, they found in some of the, the windmills on land, and we certainly have some you know, out west in particular, a lot of windmill farms, um, that, that even painting a small portion of the blades creates enough pattern for the birds to see it and not fly into it. And so there, and there are also other technologies that can, like you know, using radar, LIDAR, um, you know, sense when birds are in the area and emit something to uh, make them avoid it. Hmm. So there, okay. there are different things that are being developed on land that certainly will be deployed offshore if that's a concern. Um, but, and certainly most things that, that people do in terms of driving, having hard glass structures that are attractive to birds that, don't, that looks like the same outsides and they hit, hit the glass, just like you mentioned. Yeah. Absolutely, that uh, there will be impacts like that, but how how extensive will it be? And the cumulative impact is where that question um, okay. gets answered over time and hard to answer it uh, until experience shows us what the actual mortality might be. Have they thought about making them look like giant cats? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my idea for you jack you can take that one <laughs> you're going to be rich <laughs> indeed, indeed. all right um let's see the uh and you you did talk about the some of this a bit but what what do what role do states play you talked about new jersey uh passing is there more to say about the state's role in these developments Yes, they have a large role. In addition to the Federal Energy um, Regulatory Commission, FERC, uh, each state has its own public utility 
uh, board of some type, which regulates public utilities. And so the, the onshore grid and, and those issues, that's one of the regulatory levels that you have to go through in order to, once you bring it ashore, you have to have the right to sell it. You can't sell it unless you're compliant with both FERC and with your state by uh, public utility board, whatever it's called. Um, and then, of course, the actual physical things where the state's coastal management program will have policies about offshore and onshore development through the sensitive areas of its coastal zone. If the only logical place to put a cable is going to be through a sanctuary marsh area that's also a, a protected migratory bird rookery, then they will have a right to say you can't do it and they will not be able to get a permit. There will be state permits under the Clean Water Act delegated authorities to the state. Um, there may be a, a particular wetland program that the state has. In addition to the federal program, the Corps of Engineers will uh, require a permit for all of these. Uh, and so there, that level of regulation at the, on the environmental side, in addition to the land use regulations, that the, uh, the land use plans that the com communities have are all authorized by state acts. And so they are all exercising state authority when they regulate that land use. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and what what about uh, NGOs? How do you think they'll react to this ramp up of offshore wind development? I think they are of two minds. One, they're excited for the carbon to be going away and getting rid of coal plants in particular. Um, I think they like renewable energy. They want to support that. But they're going to have to take a hard look at what the potential impacts are, particularly to endangered species and to those um, uh, other fishing stocks or uh, it, it, recreational issues um, that may come up for them. I, I think that the, I, I think we'll see less litigation from the NGOs for offshore than we have for a lot of other types of activities, but it, it remains to be seen because there are so few. I mean, we're just now entering um, I think the third uh, wind farm is just at that point where the public EIS process is going to be starting. And so we don't really have enough experience and they're very localized at this point. Uh, but I know that they're tracking it uh, sure. and they should be as part of what they're concerned about. Uh, but uh, um, I believe that they're going to have a hard time saying, yes, this is great on one hand and then spilling over it on the other unless there's some concrete evidence uh, about the harm that they have to have to monitor. Okay. Um, now, it, some of this is going to get, um, uh, how do I say it? Well, obviously, some everything has been politicized these days. And as I was driving across Pennsylvania, where I live, I, you know, I can see that very clearly from the road signs and billboards about, and some of them were, some of the billboards were very anti, like Green New Deal and things like that. But but so that aside, you know, as I was reading the administration's the ramp up uh, article on the White House site, and, and you mentioned this, they must use the word jobs in every other sentence. So so that's something that everyone wants, you know, regardless of your political position. Um, and I, I do notice, too, I can't remember exactly, but they made reference to uh workers in the midwest doing something that fed something in texas but i grew up in the midwest around steel mills and coal mines and and things like that and watched those jobs go away since i was born um how um i guess is there anything you could say about 
how realistic is that uh, is the jobs part of this i mean if it, let's assume that this really gets going uh, that uh, that we we start to head for this capacity in uh, 2030 uh, how, how realistic is that there will be more jobs and in, in, in what's in what sectors do you think I think there is very realistic that we absolutely need the personnel that have the technical training to be able to go out on the ships and help install and then maintain um, these types of wind turbines. Uh, There are all all kinds of technical jobs and putting them together and and maintaining them. The construction side, the new port and manufacturing facility areas certainly all require that. Um, whether we get a waiver from the Jones Act and uh, we get some foreign flags uh, able to be utilized uh, or not, the people in the U.S. are the ones that are going to be uh, primarily, except for the few that are going to be imported, making the towers and making the uh, equipment that's going to be used in this. Uh, the opportunity is also for retraining and for education. Uh, I think the opportunity for technical colleges and programs at the state level to involve the states again at a regional level um, is really good. Um, uh, there, I know in, in my state, the development of the automotive and the aeronautics industry, uh, with lots of different programs and dedicated schools sprang up for people to be trained in those positions to get on the you know, line you know, making the BMWs or the Volvos. Uh, or the Boeing planes. And so uh, I think we'll see that here and people getting into how to do that steel making to make the ships or steel making to make the towers or the actual uh, nacelles and and turbines themselves. And then all the cabling. Uh, The largest uh, cable manufacturer in the world is actually here in South Carolina, Nexan, for the undersea cabling. Uh, and so there's an opportunity for that to have to expand. There's an awful lot of cable involved. You have to connect every single tower, and then you have to connect the tower to a substation offshore, and then you have to bring it onshore to a substation. And so there's miles and miles of cabling that's going to be required uh, for, for each of these. So I, I think the jobs component is a sure bet. Uh, I think it'll be technical, therefore higher paying. Um and I think that the projections they have of about a $50 billion investment uh, is probably about right. Uh, I think wow. it's going to take that. Well, I, I, you know, as somebody who grew up in, in the Ohio Valley and my dad, uh, his whole career was in manufacturing first in the rubber industry at Goodyear and Goodrich, and then later in titanium at titanium metals corporation. And so you know, my whole family was supported by those industries and it was just, it was hard to see some of those places shut down. Um, some managed to survive, but I, I, what you're saying about, I keep thinking about a lot of these men and women uh, about why couldn't, why couldn't we retrain and educate them and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. And so when you said that, that really uh, struck a chord with me. So I, I hope for their sake and their, and the next generations that that, that kind of thing comes to fruition. So they can have these kinds of jobs. Good for all of us, yes. Yeah, it would be good for all of us. Well, uh, is there anything else, uh, Jack, you wanted to talk about? I think you covered a lot of ground here. Well, we did. I appreciate the opportunity. I think it's a a new and growing industry that has a lot of opportunity and promise. Um, We'll wait and see, you know, how it really comes out. We've never seen a hurricane hit an offshore um, wind farm yet. We'll, we'll see how we survive that, how, how strong do they really have to be. Um, and so there, there's lots to consider 
And I think we've done a pretty good job of at least putting some of the main pieces out there. But as time goes by, we'll have more and more things to, to look at. Be on the lookout for more policy statements from the administration, I believe. Uh, I think uh, looking at coastal management opportunities for unifying how states address this is in the national interest. I would suspect that will be a defensive measure that the administration may want to take. Um, but I don't know beyond that you know, what to expect until we see exactly in case-by-case case situation when a lease is granted and when the plan goes out for EIS for the specific wind field, uh, wind farm, then you're going to see what happens. Yeah, I didn't think about hurricanes. That's uh, too much wind. Is <laughs> too much of anything is a, is a is a bad thing. So, um, well, well, Jack Smith, thank you very much for talking to me today. I appreciate it. Tom, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. That brings us to the end of the uh, this episode. Once again, you've been listening to Jack Smith with Nelson Mullins on uh, renewable energy and uh, specifically on the offshore wind, offshore wind power. And much more, because there's always much more. I want to thank Jack again for spending the time uh, speaking with me about this. Once again, this is uh, a collaboration between uh, my company, and which is HB, Litigation Conferences, and, uh, and FastCase. So FastCase Legal Research. For over 20 years, FastCase has been providing industry-leading tools to solo lawyers, law firms, and bar associations across the country with the goal of making legal research easier and more intuitive. FastCase is a proud partner to more than 50 national, state, and county bar associations as a free member benefit. Visit FastCase.com or email sales at FastCase.com to learn if your bar association offers free access to FastCase. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm Tom Hagee with HB Litigation Conferences. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a good rating. Thanks and hope to see you on another one.